Welcome to Surfcast. My guest today is Tullian, and we'll pronounce his last name together because I have messed it up multiple times. Tullian is the, is the uh, grandson of the late Dr. Billy Graham. He actually is a um, phenomenal person who experienced in 2015 a terrible crash in his spiritual life, in his social life, in his own life with his family and most all of his friends. He's here to tell that story. But before you listen to this episode, if you can, go grab it. Um, his talk in the Lee University Chapel today, it'll be available in the show notes. You don't want to miss this episode as Tullian and uh, his wife Stacy are with us in Surfcast and they're talk about restoration and God's great work. Tullian, welcome to Surfcast. Thank you for joining me today. It's good to be here. How in the world does someone, well, I'm not capable of doing it. We've been trying it for the last few hours, right? How do we pronounce this last name? I have no idea. I'm just kidding. It's pronounced Chavijan. Chavijan. And it rhymes with religion. Yeah. That helps people sometimes. It's sometimes. an Armenian last name. So like my it. dad was born and raised in Switzerland. Yep. But his dad was born and raised in Armenia. His mom was born and raised in Switzerland. So the last name is Armenian. Yeah. Chavijan, like Kevorkian, Kardashian, <laughs> Chavijan. Chavijan, yeah. there you go. I just got lamb, you know what I'm saying? Uh, it's so, so easy, it's you have no a, idea how good you have it. There you go, there you go. Man, I'm glad you joined us today. Now, for our <laughs> listeners who are just chiming in, um, basically, we're following up on a chapel that Tullian did at Lee University today. And Now, when you hear this, um, you'll be able to link directly in the show notes to the, the message that he shared in the chapel. And I'm going to recommend that you do that before you listen to this episode, hmm. because this episode is going to be digging into a little bit about that conversation. So Tully, and for our listeners who um, may actually not go and get that, give us just a brief history, um, a few minutes about you're the grandson of Billy Graham. You were a very successful pastor. 2015, you hit rock bottom. Hmm. God's grace is abundant. You and your wonderful wife, Stacy just had lunch with you guys. It's been a great day to meet and greet. Hmm. But let's talk a little bit about, give us enough of the history to lead us into some prompting questions today. Um, to follow up on this conversation. Yeah, so I was born and raised in a Christian home. God gave me an amazing legacy, as you've already mentioned. Uh, I ended up dropping out of high school at 16 years old and getting kicked out of my house because I was such wow. a hellion. Yeah. I was the prodigal son of seven children, wow. um, the middle of seven children. And the Bible says that sin is pleasurable for a season, but when that season comes to an end, you're left with a gaping hole in your soul that only God is big enough to fill. And that season came to an end for me at 21 years old. It wasn't one particular event or some particular crisis. It was just this culminating sense of there's got to be more to life than what I'm experiencing. Sure. There has to be more to who I am than what this world is telling me. And so uh, the hound of heaven tracked me down and mm. magnificently defeated me and turned my life inside out and upside down. And I almost immediately began pursuing um, pastoral ministry to mm. a certain degree. I, I wanted to go to college, and so I did. I went to a school in Columbia, South Carolina and studied philosophy, and then I went on to seminary and got my Master of Divinity degree. Um, was on staff at a large church in Knoxville, Tennessee for two years, uh, and then went back home to South Florida, Fort Lauderdale area, to plant a church at the mm -hmm. request of a group of people. That church was doing remarkably well, and when it was four and a half years old, uh, a much more well-known church about 20 minutes down the road, Coral Ridge Presbyterian mm -hmm. Church, asked if I would consider becoming their next pastor, which I said no to three times. And uh, when they came back the last time, I said, I'm I would only do this if we merged the two churches. Mm -hmm. So we ended up doing that in 2009. 
the first year of ministry there was incredibly difficult as a result of the merger. And a lot of things about that church needed to change. And so mm-hmm. we had to institute a lot of changes. Um, and after that first year was over, the church just started to thrive. Right. Uh, not only did the church thrive, but my own ministry began to thrive. Um, at that point, I was writing a book a year. Mm-hmm. My sermons were broadcast on television around the world every week. They were on the radio every day. I was traveling around the country, speaking at conferences and churches and other events. And um, I mean, professionally speaking, mm-hmm. I had made it in many different ways. Um, and then in 2015, it all came crashing down. Mm-hmm. My first marriage had been struggling for a little while. And rather than giving it the attention it needed, it ultimately ended in divorce as a result of infidelity. Mm-hmm. Um, and overnight, I Your lost infidelity. my infidelity. Yeah. Yep. And overnight, I lost everything, absolutely everything. Um, I lost friends. I lost credibility. Uh, I lost my reputation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I lost hope. I lost purpose. I lost meaning. I mean, Overnight, at yeah. 41 years old, everything was gone. And because I was a public person, it was very, very public, mm-hmm. um, which made it even more difficult to deal with on a personal level, yeah. just with my now ex-wife, my kids, all that stuff, because everybody had something to say about it, mm-hmm. good or bad. Um So uh, that led me into a season where I underwent a massive identity crisis because without these things and without these people that I had come to depend on Mm -hmm. to make me feel like life was worth living, I had no idea who I was. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, God used that season to expose the idolatry in my own heart, exposing to me those things that I was depending on that were smaller than him to invest mm-hmm. my life with meaning and mm-hmm. value and worth and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't long after that that God brought Stacy, my wife, mm-hmm. into my life. Uh, she had been through her own difficult seasons prior to meeting me um, in a couple of different ways. She'd been married twice, divorced twice. She had been through the ringer in so many different ways. Yep. Uh, and But she was on the other side of it. Sure. I was in the middle of it. She was on the other side of it. And I found her to be an amazing sounding board, a wise counselor, uh, a sticky friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were together for about a year and then got married mm-hmm. uh, in 2016. And uh, that's when God really started to deconstruct me right. in some very painful ways. Uh, he surrounded me with a few really good, older, wiser saints who mm-hmm. stuck with me, who walked with me uh, through the various valleys of the shadows of death that I had to walk through. Um, and, uh, and you know, mm. that was not only incredibly painful, but at the same time, looking back now, it was sure. incredibly liberating. Right. I tell people all the time, there's so much about my former life that I miss Mm -hmm. still. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm incredibly sentimental and very nostalgic. And so there's so much about life the way that it was that I miss, but I don't ever miss the person that I was in that life. Mm -hmm. And I think if you were to talk to people who knew me at that time, uh, they would say they liked me. Uh, mm-hmm. They would say that, um, you know, I was enjoyable, all of those things. But when I look back now, I just see a guy who, especially toward the end, right. found so much uh, significance in my own success mm-hmm. 
that I started to lose sight of what I was actually doing sure. and who I was doing it for. So the way that I describe it for people is um, prior to 2015, uh, I found so much of my identity in the message of the gospel, um, but so much of my success contributed to the fact that as time went on, I found a tremendous amount of my identity in being a successful messenger sure. of the gospel. And that slow and subtle shift was really the beginning of the end for me. Let, let's unpack that for just a minute, because the question that's kind of uh, probing in my mind is, were there any early indicators before mm-hmm. the fall? Right, before everything began to crash, before yeah. the moral failure, were there any early indicators? And did you ignore those? How did you deal with those? Yeah, so, you know, I talk to lots of people now mm-hmm. who have undergone divorce, infidelity in their marriage, yeah. uh, husband, wife, whatever. Um, and in some of those cases, uh, there's some sort of addiction. There's a okay. there's some sort of sexual addiction involved. In lots of other cases, in most cases, I would say that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some people assume that if a man has an affair... Uh, it's because he's trying to fill some physical void. Mm -hmm. And if a woman has an affair, she's trying to fill some emotional Emotional. void. Well, that's not always true, and that certainly wasn't the case for me. Um, The earliest indicators to me as it pertained to my marriage were there were things, I mean, my wife and I in many ways were very close, but there were things, there were disconnects that Mm -hmm. were significant to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just at that point kind of assumed, well, this is just the way it is. God doesn't give us everything we want, uh, but he does give us everything we need. Um, and I started to become increasingly restless in that regard. Mm. And where I felt voids in my marriage, I would fill those voids with uh, attention. Not, I'm not talking just attention from Females. Sure. I mean, attention in general. Sure. Um, attention for writing books. Attention for preaching sermons. Attention yeah. for being, you know, the senior pastor of this church. Whatever the case may be. Um, that's a that's a very strong. And I look back now. I go. Mm-hmm. That was an indicator. I was trying to Business. fill certain voids mm-hmm. uh, with things smaller than the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, also, like I just mentioned. This was there was a slow and subtle shift from finding my worth in the message of the gospel to finding my worth in being a successful messenger of the gospel. Mm. That was so slow and so subtle that I could not see it happening at the time. But I look back now and think I was beginning to take ownership of something that did not belong to me. Mm. And even though I was writing and preaching Jesus plus nothing equals everything, um, in reality, in the way that I was functioning, it was kind of Tullian plus nothing mm-hmm. equals everything. Mm-hmm. And I would not have seen that at the time. Uh, I can look back after countless hours of counseling and self-examination and help from other people that that was the case. Um, so it was, uh, I mean, it was a crash and burn uh, on a monumental scale. Uh, I tend to be a stubborn student, and so uh, God knew exactly what it would require to get my attention Mm -hmm. um, and to set me free. And I think that's the thing. Ultimately, uh, the beauty of the gospel is that God will do anything and everything to set the Mm -hmm. captives free. Mm -hmm. And I was held captive to things that I was completely unaware of. Mm. 
Um, and so his mission in my life to set me free uh, not only continues today, but in many ways was experienced at a profoundly new level mm-hmm. during that season of my life. You know, in, in the chapel, you talked a lot about this whole idea of, you know, God's grace and God's mercy. And, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of times we, uh, I don't know if we learn it, I don't know if it's a learned behavior or what, you know, but we judge people who we think, you know, need to be judged. And I think too often we miss being real examples of God's grace and God's mm-hmm. mercy. Yeah. Uh, one of the students asked me to ask this question of you. Um, how are you reminded every day of God's grace from after going through such a, you know, embarrassingly shameful experience in your life, mm. to use your terminology, you know, you went away for a while, now you're back, mm, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How do you how do you see God's grace every day in this process? Man, we, 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 we know you saw it right in the restitution. Yeah. We know you see it in, in the relationship with Stacy, right? Yeah. But how do you see it in every day? Makes sense? Man, yes, it does make sense. And the best way for me to answer that question would be to say, um, when you have everything mm-hmm. and you lose it all yep. and you never think you'll ever be happy again, you never think you'll ever enjoy life again. You never think that you will ever experience the joy and the peace that you had before again. Um, you become incredibly thankful mm-hmm. for the smallest things when they show up. Right. I mean, my perspective on life now, and this is where I see God's grace in the most tangible ways, I am A, happy to be alive, Yeah, just happy to be alive. The fact that I'm breathing and that I am a functioning human being uh, is an amazing testimony to God's grace, given everything that happened and where I was four or five years ago. Um, you already mentioned my wife, God bringing me my wife, God, um, just the relationship with my three children who are close to me and that's always been an incredibly important relationship to me with all three of my kids, that relationship, those relationships never wavered. Mm -hmm. They never, those kids never blinked. They gave me the one way love that God gives me every day. Um, the fact that I get to live in, uh, near my hometown of South Florida, which is, I've, I'm, I love, love, love that place. And when I moved away, I thought I'll, I'll never be back. Nowhere that I live, I will ever love as much as I loved living in Fort Lauderdale. Well, we live just north of West Palm Beach now, which mm-hmm. is not far from Fort Lauderdale. I love that. I mean, the smallest sure. things that I, my wife and I, God called us to start a church, mm-hmm. uh, six months ago, uh, called the sanctuary and, um, with a group of people and, You know, I told them a few weeks ago, I said, the beautiful thing about ministry now compared to ministry before for me is I don't care if this church has a hundred people in it Mm -hmm. or a thousand people in Mm -hmm. it. One of the things God did in the whole deconstruction process was uh, strip me of this false notion that my worth and my value and my significance were in some way tied to what I did or what I could become or what people thought of me or my success or whatnot. So having been stripped of that, um, ministry is so much more enjoyable. I'm living in the moment in a way now that I never have. I'm not, I'm not looking past today to see what tomorrow has, hoping that it's better than today. Um, the best word that I can use to describe the way that I experience and see God's grace now 
in the aftermath of crashing and burning is just gratitude. Mm -hmm. I'm just so grateful for the smallest things. I told a few of you at lunch a few minutes ago how honored and grateful I am simply for the invitation to come mm -hmm. to Lee University and to speak. Uh, I don't get as many invitations as I used to get and have felt uh, persona non grata by the Christian community as a result of what happened back in 2015. And uh, so even an invitation to come sure. is just a testimony Remind of God's you. grace. And it's a reminder, it's a reminder from him, not only to me, but to anybody listening, that if you're not dead, God's not done, mm -hmm. period. Mm -hmm. um, he really is in the redemption business. He's mm -hmm. in the restoration business. And when I was hitting rock bottom, I doubted that. I mean, I just doubted it. I just, I didn't think there was any way God could redeem this mess, that there was mm -hmm. any way God could restore this mess into something that could become mm -hmm. beautiful. Um, and he has, and he continues to do so. And I'm just, I've always preached about the grace of God. I've always written about the grace of God. I have been known as kind of the grace guy in, you know, broader evangelical circles, but never have I experienced the grace that I preached for so long the way that I experience it now. Let, let's talk a little bit about that because obviously the whole grace idea and redemption, right, and forgiveness, there's also the responsibility of restitution, yep. right? And there's also... This idea, I think a lot of folks get lost in this concept, and Dallas Willard calls it sin management, you mm -hmm. know, and this whole idea that that we're just looking for behavior modification. You know, you, you were not really looking for behavior modification. Mm -hmm. You were just looking for a lifeline. Right, you know? survival. Yeah, yeah. So, so the question is, what have you learned about yourself through this process with this in this context of what kind of stop gaps are you putting in place? How mm -hmm. are you different now than you were before mm -hmm. in the sense of, Right, so yeah, God's a God of grace, and His mercy is going to be tomorrow. It's going to be new. Yeah, I get all of that, but I don't really want to live in sin management. I want yeah. to live in freedom. Mm -hmm. You know, in everyday discipleship growth. How do we, how do we own that side of it so that we can not be a repeater of habitual sins over yeah. and over? Does it make sense to you? Yeah, you know? it does. So, I, it, so, what have you put in place to be different than yeah. that? Um. Well, Maybe let me let me start. Idea. Yeah, let mm. me start by saying I think in the Christian community specifically, people see people fear the radicality of God's grace right. because they think that if people really take God at His word and they really embrace the unconditionality of His love and the radicality of His grace, that uh, morality goes out the window good behavior goes out the window and you'll have masses of people thinking to themselves, well, uh, why should we then not go on sinning so that grace may abound? Okay. Mm -hmm. That's the fear. And let me explain why that is a complete phantom fear. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because I have never, I'm 47 years old. I have never in my life met anybody who is so captured and captivated by God's unconditional love for them by his amazing grace for them, that their immediate response is then to go out and live for themselves, mm -hmm. ever. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, in Romans 6, when Paul says, he has just finished, Romans 4 and 5, uh, articulating the beauty and the profundity of the gospel, mm -hmm. that it is in Christ and in Christ alone that we have the full forgiveness of sins, 
that Christ was the second Adam. And uh, we, in him, live our lives under a banner that reads, it is finished. So then he anticipates this question in Romans 6. In light of what I just said, I know what you guys are thinking, he says. Uh, Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? And of course, his answer is, of course not. Mm -hmm. But then he does something unique, something you wouldn't expect him to do. Rather than pull back on the message of grace, Mm -hmm. he drives it in deeper because his whole point is to show uh, if you're asking questions like that, it's not because you get grace too much. Mm -hmm. It's because you get it too little. Mm -hmm. You don't understand it enough because someone whose heart has been grasped by the grace of God says things like, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. So uh, grace is not the enemy of obedience. Mm -hmm. It is the fuel for obedience. And a heart that is grasped by God's grace wants to love God and others more. Mm -hmm. So um, I think the thing that makes me want to obey God more is the truth that God loves me unconditionally even when I disobey. Mm, Sure. And that reality grips me. So in terms of what to put in place, um, I mean, there are certain practical things, you know, that we can put put in place to guard our lives. I think... Full transparency with your spouse, first of all, husband and wife is super important. Um, Openness and honesty with those around you that God has put in your life is huge. Cultivating a culture of grace in your relationships that you feel the freedom to tell the truth about yourself without Mm -hmm. fear of rejection. All of those things are super important. But I've also learned that you can have as many safeguards as you want in your life. And if you are dead set on getting around those because you want to fulfill some nasty desire of your heart, you will find a way to do it. Um, And so while certain safeguards are important, uh, when we put our trust entirely in those safeguards, Mm -hmm. uh, I think we're setting ourselves up for a fall. Um, So You, you talked about this idea that I don't know the exact quote. You'll you'll know it. Let me see if I can, I can grab it enough. You know that my sin that I can't seem to forget. Yes, yeah, yeah. Give us that quote again. Yeah, uh, the sins we cannot forget, God chooses not to remember. That's Hebrews eight twelve. Great, right? Yeah. So the question I got is this whole idea of shame, right? Mm-hmm. So obviously, you're human. So obviously, mm-hmm. you know, you, you you see an article about you somewhere. You know, you have an encounter with a conversation with somebody of the previous place, mm-hmm. right? Um, you maybe, you know, you see people that were in your church at one time before, right? The, the shame factor, the enemy wants to bring the shame back again. So for our listeners who are not at the place of restitution or mm-hmm. the place of restoration that you're at, right? How do they deal with their shame? You know, let's talk about it because that, that's, yeah. that's a, that's a sidelining issue. You know, a it, lot it of people, because they can't be honest. So then they live with their shame in their own, in their own closet, overwhelmed mm-hmm. by their own pain. Speak to that for just a minute. How can they get past that? Yeah, man, that is tough. First of all, it's a process. Uh, I feel like I am on the other side of the worst parts of what I have gone through, uh, what I experienced. That does not mean, however, that I don't still experience guilt, shame, regret, sadness. I do. And for me, the only answer to those things, those paralyzing 
uh, feelings, those paralyzing realities, is the gospel. I mean, it really, really is because the gospel announces something so much bigger and so much better and so much brighter than what we realize. It announces that because of Jesus, we are fully and forever forgiven. We are completely accepted and approved. We are unconditionally loved, which means that there is nothing we can do or fail to do that will ever tempt God to leave us or forsake Mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. And while God never promises to relieve us of our problems and our pain here and now, he does promise to be with us in our problems and in our pain Mm -hmm. here and now. I mean, that's the whole message of the incarnation of Christ. Um, And so... For me, uh, I think it was Martin Luther who said, uh, we have to preach the gospel to ourselves every day because we forget it every day. Mm-hmm. And then he went on to say, we have to preach that for pastors. We have to preach the gospel to our people every week because they forget it every week. Um, I think that is hugely important uh, in terms of being around people. I mean, it's still, I was telling a student today, I said, it is so hard still and embarrassing for mm-hmm. me to stand up in front of couple thousand people mm-hmm. and talk about the fact that I cheated on my first wife. I, I mean, that is an embarrassing, I, I don't, I cringe when I say it. I cringed when I said it just now. I mean, I don't like saying that stuff. I just have no, there's no better way, or I have no idea of how to tell people how good God is without first telling them how bad I am and how needy I am. Mm. And I think one of the things that helps me deal with the shame and the guilt uh, is, A, it's normal. Mm. It's normal. You're not a substandard Christian if you experience those things. That is humanity. Mm -hmm. That is the human condition at work. Um, There are horizontal consequences to our sins. While we may not ever experience vertical condemnation, from God as a result of our sins, because that was put on Jesus, we do experience the horizontal consequences. And when we find ourselves in the throes of those consequences, which are often accompanied by guilt and shame and Mm -hmm. regret, um, throwing ourselves back on the truth that we are not vertically condemned Mm -hmm. helps me weather the storm of my horizontal consequences. So Romans 8, 1, for instance, Mm -hmm. is like the... Is, is like the thesis of my life. Mm-hmm. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. Beautiful, simple, <clears throat> impossible to believe apart from the God-given gift of faith. Um, but I think we feel condemnation from others. We feel condemnation. We condemn ourselves. Um, and to be reminded that um, God condemned Jesus for mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm so that we never have to experience condemnation from him is just, that's what keeps me going. It really is. So let's talk about this whole idea of church discipline for just a minute, yeah. because you actually went through some reconciliation, right? Uh, yeah, yes. I mean, reconciliation where it can happen 
has happened. Mm-hmm. But in some cases, you know, I mean, when the Bible says, do your best to live at peace with all men, sure. as far as it depends sure. on you. Well, sure. some relationships are broken now and they'll sure. never be repaired until always, heaven. always be right. broken. Right. And some have been mended. Mm-hmm. Um, there has been reconciliation with the people that God has wanted reconciliation with. Mm-hmm. Um, there has been some relationships, like I mentioned, are broken beyond repair, mm-hmm. this side of heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, their amends has been made where and when it has been possible for me to look certain people in the eye and tell them I'm sorry. And it's not always possible to do that. It's not. It's not. And you're not in control of whether or not the person receives it or reciprocates. So all of that's outside of our control. But, um, but yes, church discipline. The the, the bigger question I think is, you know, what, what, so let's say we've got a pastor that's listening to this conversation, right? And he's, uh. He's aware that he has someone in his church, you know, or he or she, they have a relationship with somebody that they need to help, you know, disciple and bring back into, you know, a place of of, um, recovery after a failure that they've had. Because too often, as you mentioned earlier, you know, that that too often the church is not the place for recovery, but it needs to be the place where we do that. How does a how does a Bible believing, compassionate, caring minister do this in such a way that reaches the heart of people who really would be rejected otherwise. Yeah. I guess they may need to visit sanctuary, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is a tough question because every situation is unique. Um, Martin Luther, who I've quoted a handful of times now, uh, who is my historical hero, um, and this is a summary of what he said, but he essentially said that God's law is for the hard-hearted. God's mm-hmm. gospel is for the broken-hearted. Mm-hmm. So God has given us, pastors and otherwise, two tools in our toolbox. He's given us law and he's given us gospel. The law is to be given to the hard-hearted person in the hopes sure. that it will break them down uh, so that the gospel can cure them. The gospel is to be delivered to broken-hearted people. Now, what makes that difficult is we don't always know right. who the hard-hearted person is and who the broken-hearted person was. In my own pastoral experience, uh, I have at times assumed this person was hard-hearted when in reality, just beneath the surface, they were deeply broken-hearted. Sure. And at other times, I've assumed this person is broken-hearted, but it's a veneer. Not the case. It's a facade. Mm-hmm. Right underneath that is a real hard-heartedness. So... Um, it's difficult to know and to discern, and it requires the Holy Spirit's help massively mm-hmm. in those moments to discern as a parent, as a pastor, whatever, um, which tool to use in which moment. But I think when we understand that God gives us two tools, two words, uh, the law which exposes us and the gospel which exonerates us, mm-hmm. uh, dependent, depending on where the person in the church is with regard to their sin. If the person is saying, um, no, I'm not guilty, or even though I am, I don't care. There's nothing you can do about it. And they're just really hard hearted. Well, the law needs to be at work mm-hmm. in the hopes that the gospel will eventually <clears throat> cure them. Right. Um, if someone comes and says, uh, pastor, I'm, I'm overwhelmed. Uh, no one knows this, but um, you know, I'm cheating on my husband and I'm scared to death to tell him, and I don't know what to do. Well, that's not a hard-hearted person that needs the law. That is a broken-hearted person mm-hmm. who needs the gospel, and so your approach is going to be different with those two people. Um, I will say this, uh, in general, as it pertains to church discipline, um, a lot of people, a lot of pastors, a lot of church leaders assume 
that it's the heaviness of the law that will ultimately bring about the necessary change. Not true. The, it is not part of the law's job description to bring about the necessary change. It's there to expose, it's there to diagnose, but it's not there to exonerate and deliver. So at the end of the day, if someone is going to genuinely exercise their the God-given gift of repentance, it will be as a result of that person encountering the unconditional love and grace of God. It is the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance, mm -hmm. ultimately. Um, and so I think we make a mistake when we assume that the harder we are on this person, that's when they'll change. Mm. That yeah. might be when they, when the need for change is exposed, sure. but actual change doesn't happen until they can sense that they are unconditionally loved by an amazingly gracious God. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the people that is a historical hero to a lot of folks is your grandfather. Yes. And, including um, me. Including you. Yep. Including me, right? Yeah. Um, you know, we've got a few minutes left on this episode, so let's talk about your grandfather. At lunch, we talked a little bit about, you know, they would always come to South Florida to visit you guys, and you guys would always go to North Carolina. Mm -hmm. What are some of your fondest memories of um, Dr. Billy Graham, as we call him, but your yeah. grandfather? We called him Billy, we called him Daddy Bill, sorry. Daddy Bill. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I think... It wasn't until I was maybe 10 or 11 years old that I realized just what a big deal he was. Mm -hmm. And I say that because we spent a lot of time with my grandparents growing up, and they never carried themselves as important people. Uh, they were so normal, it would shock people. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, my grandfather's two favorite restaurants were Morrison's Cafeteria and Piccadilly Cafeteria. <laughs> yeah. okay, his favorite drink was orange juice. Um, his, you know, he loved his favorite movies were Crocodile Dundee and Pretty Woman. I mean, it's just, they were so normal. Yeah. I mean, they were just so down to earth, yeah. so real, so normal. And I think, you know, I can look at his life and what he accomplished as everybody else can and be amazed at the way God used him. The fact that he was able to maintain uh, the humility that he had that was genuine, that we as his family members saw over the course of his entire life, given everything he accomplished. I mean, uh, presidents and world leaders calling on him for counsel, sure. that would go to our heads so mm -hmm. quickly that we would think we're far more important than the average Joe. It never did with him. And that's just a gift from God. He would give God all the credit for that. Um, so in, aside from that stuff, which is incredibly impressive, I think just his personableness, his humility, his, just how normal he was down to earth, both he and my grandmother. I mean, they were the reason I said, I did not know they were really important people until I was a little bit older is because like I said, they never acted like they were important sure. people. They never carried themselves like they were important people. Every time I would go out in public with him and people would recognize him, I mean, he would stop and talk to everybody, so much so that it would start to annoy us. We're like, <laughs> let's go. You know, yeah. we got to go eat or we got to go home or whatever. But he just never stopped. I mean, he genuinely loved people. It, it doesn't matter if he's talking to a president mm -hmm. or a homeless person. He treated all people the same. Um, I think the fact that he was exactly who the world saw him to be in private, 
mm-hmm. behind closed doors. Uh, they saw him publicly on the platform and they admired him. Well, the same guy that was on that platform behind closed doors was the same guy we saw. Um, just there's no explanation for his character, uh, for who he was, for what he accomplished other than simply God. I mean, it is God's fingerprints are all over his life, all over his ministry. Um, I mean, that's all he wanted people to know, that there's nothing special about me. Uh, I have been saved and rescued by a special God who called me to a particular task. He never thought he was a good theologian. He never thought he was a good preacher. He never thought he was a great thinker. Um, He was very wise in surrounding himself with people his entire life who were better than him at the things that he was weak at. So mm-hmm. he he wasn't a theologian, but he surrounded himself with theologians. Sure. Uh, he he wasn't a, a real thinker in the ways that, you know, we would typically think of today, but he surrounded himself. He was just humble in that regard. Mm-hmm. He would ask questions more than he talked. He would, um, he's, he's just a, he was just amazing. I mean, I could go on and on and on, but mm-hmm. um, the man himself was about as genuine of a person as you will ever meet with all the normal flaws and frailties of the rest of us. So from your grandfather's image of a guy who kept it all together, mm-hmm. right, to your image of a guy who lost it all, mm. right, seems like to me that the gospel is still available to reach for all of us, regardless of who we are or what's going on. So in closing thoughts, what would you share to our listeners today that maybe they're going through a situation where they're afraid to tell anybody. Maybe they're going through a situation where they're ashamed. Maybe they're going through a situation where they think they've got it all together, but the enemy is still out to get them, yeah. right? He's still out. You, you call it the hound of heaven. You yeah. know, we call it the dog of hell, right? He's the one that's, <laughs> yeah. that's chasing at you every day yeah. to try to destroy you. Closing thoughts to our audience today that, that would encourage them that no matter where you are, you know, George Beverly Shea, which I'm sure you've heard him sing a thousand times, yep. right? Um, you know, so, so, so wonderfully led, you know, all of the music at your grandfather's mm-hmm. crusades, you know, and, and understanding in your grandfather preaching that the gospel, man, the cross, it's level ground for yeah. everybody. Right? Yeah. Speak to that before we close. So I want to read something <clears throat> to you in answer to that question that I wrote, um, and put up on my Facebook page. And it has to do with all of that stuff, Good. including my grandfather. I say, in a season of sin and self-destruction back in 2015, I lost everything and hurt many people in the process. At 41 years old, I broke my life, I broke my family, and I broke the hearts of those who trusted me and looked to me for leadership. Through heaving tears of sorrow and shame, regret and remorse, I sent this note to a friend of mine the night my granddad died two years ago. And this is what I said to my friend. Watching my grandfather's life and the tributes that are rolling in, it has hit me afresh just how selfish I was, how much I squandered, and for what? For what? What does it profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul? Character matters. It does not gain us favor with God, but it does give us credibility with others so that we can deliver God's favor to the world. I blew it. I'm undone. My friend responded with six words. There was a man named David. I lost it. He had the perfect words at just the right time. It was the powerful and comforting reminder I needed at that moment that God loves and uses people who fail because people who fail are all that there are. Maybe you need that reminder too. Yes, there was a man named David, but even more powerful and comforting is the good news that there is a man named Jesus. 
Unlike my grandfather, I soiled my record. Regardless of how I live my life from now until the day I die, my season of sinful self-destruction will always be remembered and talked about. The hurt I caused myself and others will linger in many hearts and cause some people to doubt me, disparage me, and distrust me for the rest of my days. I've accepted that my blemished reputation is here to stay. There is no going back. But I believe that if Daddy Bill were still alive, he'd say something like this to me. Tullian, I may not be guilty externally of the same sins you are, but I assure you that my heart is no less sinful than yours. According to God's standard of perfection, I'm a failure just like you. All our records are stained with sin, but the good news of the gospel is that Jesus' perfect record is ours by faith. When God looks at our account, he doesn't see all of our nasty withdrawals. Rather, he sees all of Christ's perfect deposits. In fact, the Bible makes it clear that because of Jesus, the sins we can't forget, God chooses not to remember. So take heart, failed one. Before God, the righteousness of Christ is all any of us need. Before God, the righteousness of Christ is, any, all, is, is all any of us have. The right, that righteousness, that gift of God, speaks louder than any voice of accusation. I may have blemished, I may have a blemished reputation, but not in the eyes of God. When my father sees me and when he sees you, he sees someone who looks just like Jesus, the unblemished Lamb of God. Wow. And with those words, guys, we're going to take a close on this episode. And um, I want you to listen to this Lee worship tune at the end of this episode, because I think all of us, regardless of who we are, need to contemplate on the beauty of the gospel and our responsibility is to trust and let that gospel work in us. Think about it. Until next time, have a great day. Thanks for tuning in to Surfcast with Dr. William Lamb. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Surfcast to stay updated on special guests and future episodes.
Yeah.